Today's scripture reading comes from Philemon, verses 4 to 20. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he parted from you for a while, that you might, be, you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good afternoon. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and I want to welcome you again to our Sunday afternoon service. Two weeks ago, we kicked off our Go campaign. And in the past year especially, but in the past few years, we've seen our church attendance grow by leaps and bounds. And we're humbled that so many of you are coming to our church, getting involved and becoming a part of this community. We love that you are coming, but the question we want to ask ourselves this fall is a critical and fundamental question for all, for all Christians, and the question is this, are we going? Jesus commissioned his church to go and make disciples of all nations. We have a great commission from Jesus to go. So the Go campaign, it's about mobilizing our church to go. And the follow-up questions then are naturally, where are we going, to whom are we going, how are we going, etc. So we're structuring this sermon series around three groups of people, the least, the last, and the lost. We said last week that the least is those in the church, part of the body of Christ, the last is those in need outside of the church, and the lost is those around the world who do not believe in Jesus as Lord. So we'll do three sermons on each of these three groups. So we look again this week to the least of these, my brothers. And I want to present to you a case study of what it means to go to the least, and for that, we turn to the tiny little book of Philemon. Uh, it's also pronounced Philemon, or I like to joke, in the Greek, it's actually pronounced Philemon. It seems silly to call it the book 
of Philemon because it's actually, it's actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Now, half of all of the books in the New Testament were letters written by Paul, but this one is different. First of all, it's the shortest one that he writes. And secondly, it's different because Paul is not writing here to a church. You know, he's written to the Philippian church, the Ephesian church, the Colossian church. He's not writing a collective letter with instructions and teachings, but this is a personal letter to a close friend. So I know there are a lot of college students here, but back in ancient times, believe it or not, people would handwrite letters and send them out. It would take days, even weeks, for the recipient to receive it. That was a joke. <laughs> Paul's writing a letter to his friend Philemon. And Paul's writing from prison, probably in either Ephesus or all the way in Rome. And Philemon is living in Colossae, and he is a wealthy and respected member of the Colossian church. He was most likely converted through Paul's ministry. And he opens this letter by calling Philemon his beloved fellow worker. And we come to see that the reason why Paul is writing to Philemon is because of Onesimus. Onesimus is Philemon's former bondservant who had run away. And sometime after he ran away, he met Paul and he became a Christian. So Paul is now writing to Philemon on Onesimus' behalf, asking Philemon to forgive and to take him back. No longer as a servant, but as a brother. It's a very, very short letter, but in these few words, there's much for us to learn about how the gospel transforms our relationships, and especially our relationships in the church. So I want to highlight just four things that Paul shows about the gospel in this letter. Paul shows us how Jesus reorders our priorities, how Jesus redefines our relationships, how Jesus redeems us personally, and finally, how he refreshes us through fellow believers. So the gospel is reordering, redefining, redeeming, and refreshing. I'm proud of the alliteration there. First, reordering. This is a story of three people, Philemon, Onesimus, and Paul. These are three people who could not be more different. Philemon is a wealthy and respected figure in the church. He's faithful and he's done much to help others. Onesimus is a bondservant. Now, what's a bondservant? This is the form of slavery that existed in the Roman Empire. And this form of slavery, it was not based on race like chattel slavery that happened in our history with the African slave trade. A bondservant was the lowest social class, and it was a servant who belonged to his master's household for a period of time. So this was not lifetime. You did not own a person. And he was, a, he was part of the master's household for a period of time until either he could repay the debt that he owed or there was a predetermined period of time um, that had to uh, pass. So this was already the lowest social class, but for, Phile for Onesimus to run away and basically abandon his fiduciary duty, it made him 
irresponsible. It made him impossible to trust. And the third person in this story was Paul. Who was Paul? Paul was a Pharisee who at one point in the recent past had been this religious zealot who persecuted Christians. And then after his conversion, he became an apostle, a leader in the early church, and he planted churches on several missionary journeys. So we have three very different characters in this story. And this week, like many of you, I spent a lot of time, too much time, watching the Senate Judiciary Committee's hearings overseeing the Supreme Court nomination proceedings. And it was amazing how the senators and basically the entire nation could watch the exact same event unfold and end up with such dramatically different interpretations depending on their political leanings. And that's true, I think, for most stories, right? Depending on your perspective, you tend to sympathize with different characters more or different characters less and you emphasize different aspects of the story. And I think that could also be said for this story. Perhaps if you shade conservative, you would sympathize with Philemon. Hardworking, a respected pillar of his community, honest, compassionate, living with integrity, and active in the church. Or if you shade liberal, you might be moved by the plight of Onesimus a victim of these trenchant social injustices, a slave who bravely overcomes the oppressor, who earns his freedom. And of course, if you are a Christian, then you know and you revere Paul, the greatest missionary who ever lived, who kind of brokers this reconciliation. So let me ask you this question. If you had to rank these three characters from least to greatest, what would your order be? What would your order be? Three very different people. And even in this room, I'm sure our answers would vary. But the remarkable thing about the gospel is that it completely levels the playing field. They are all equally valuable in the kingdom of God. What that means is Philemon's respectability, Paul's religiosity, and Onesimus' victimhood, none of these things make them better or worse than anyone else. All of them are just as broken, just as needy, and just as valued in the kingdom of God. There's a story in Matthew 11. John the Baptist is sitting in prison, and uh, he sends people to Jesus to ask Jesus one question. Jesus, are you the one? Or should we wait for someone else? Because John's probably thinking this. Uh, if Jesus is the one, why am I in prison right now? I'm pro-Jesus. I'm team Jesus. Why am I, what am I doing here in prison? Am I sure he's the one? And Jesus tells John's friends, go and report back to John. Yup, I'm the one. And then Jesus turns to the crowds and he starts talking about John the Baptist. And here's what he says about John the Baptist to the crowds. He says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I, I kind of imagine people reporting back to John the Baptist and saying, you will not believe what Jesus said about you. He said that among all those who were born of women, so pretty much everybody, 
there has not been anyone greater than you. And John kind of goes, oh, Jesus, what, what else did he say about me? Well, he said that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than you. Oh. <laughs> so if Jesus were to order these three characters, basically they would all be number one. Why? Because in the kingdom of God, every member's primary identity is found in Christ alone, not in social structures or social constructs. This world loves to classify people, doesn't it? Race, gender, sexuality, privilege, victimhood, achievement, wealth, beauty, etc. There are so many categories, so many criteria. But the world says, this is who you are. This is your identity. But what the Bible teaches us is that my primary identity, if I'm a Christian, is not what the world tells me it is. My core identity is not Caucasian, Black, Asian, Latino. Nor is it American, Canadian, or German. Nor is it cisgender, transgender, gender fluid. Nor is it gay, straight, lesbian, bi, and now pansexual. It is not my college degree. It is not my bank account. It is not even my religious pedigree or my moral resume. Nor is my identity my past. My past successes, my past failures. What is my identity if I am a Christian? Galatians 3, 26 through 28. I love this. For in Christ, Paul writes, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This was explosive for the first century world. Completely radical. My identity is that I am a son of God. And to all the women in here, just because it doesn't say sons and daughters does not mean you are not included. Because Paul says right after that, there is no male and female. This means we are all sons, all of us. And that's a good thing. Why? Because to everyone hearing this in the first century, sons and daughters meant two very different things. They were not equal. Sons got the inheritance. A woman's uh, daughters found their identities in their husbands, in their children. So Paul is saying, in Christ Jesus, everyone is a son. Everyone shares the inheritance. No second-class citizens here. So what does this mean? This means that once you are a Christian, every relationship you have is now irreversibly and radically transformed. You know, our criteria for, for valuing other Christians, it has to look different from those of your other relationships or relationships with non-Christians. This means, for example, I'm going to give you a couple of examples here. 
This means that you are closer, because of Jesus, to the Christian whose political stance you can't stand than you are to your close friend who is not a believer. You are closer to the Christian who can sometimes be a racist than you are to the non-believer with whom you stand in racial solidarity. In Christ, you are closer to the Christian with a scandalous or even abusive past than you are to the squeaky clean and warm non-Christian. You are closer in Christ with the Christians in your past who have hurt you, sometimes in profound ways, than you are to your non-believing friends who would never do that to you. Unity in Christ is that transformative and that radical. You have a bond in Christ that is stronger than party affiliation, shared interest, citizenship, preference, and even physical blood. So the church should boast of a greater unity than any other organization, institution, or ideology. But all too often, that is not the case. Why? Well, it's because of sin. Sin causes us to put ourselves first and others last. Sin causes us to view our needs as paramount and everyone else's needs as secondary. And therefore, sin messes everything up. It messes up all of our relationships. You know, it's fascinating that the name Onesimus, it literally means useful. Useful. So look at verse 11. Formerly, Paul says, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. So Paul is doing a little play on words here. Onesimus means useful, but you regard him as useless. But I'm telling you what Paul is saying. He's useful to you and to me, but not in the way that you think. You know what sin makes us do? It makes us evaluate others solely on the basis of their usefulness to me. So there are generally two kinds of relationships, right? There's the consumer-vendor relationship, and there's the commitment-based relationship. So a consumer-vendor relationship is like the relationship that uh, we have with our barbers or hairstylists, right? As long as I get what I need at the price that's reasonable to me, I'll be in this relationship. But the moment you mess up my hair or you raise your prices too high, I'm out. I'm out. But a commitment-based relationship, it's like the relationship that I have with my family. My kids, they don't give me what I want or what I need at all. It's entirely one way. And as much as I want to, I'm still not leaving. Why? Because I'm committed. I will never leave them. That's a commitment-based relationship. So our relationships in the body of Christ, they're supposed to be commitment-based relationships, even stronger than familial bonds. But sin turns our commitment-based relationships into consumer-vendor relationships. 
So even in the church, you are prioritizing people who will be useful to you. Maybe if you're single, you're, you're, ca- you're categorizing people based on boyfriend-girlfriend potential. Or if you come to church looking for a social network for friends, maybe it's about how well you click with, with, with the person or, or how fun that person is. And I think this also happens on an institutional level, which is not good. Too often churches prioritize people who make a lot of money or people who have leadership potential or people who are super talented. Sin makes the number one criterion I use to evaluate someone else how useful that person is to me. But listen to what Paul says to Philemon in verse 10. I appeal to you for my own child, Onesimus. He's useless to you, but I love him like my own child. Verse 15, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. As a beloved brother. You know, my my four-year-old and my two-year-old, they're at that age where they are fighting constantly. Every 10 minutes in my house, one or both of them are crying. So whenever that happens, I, I sit them down and I say, I tell them, you're brothers. You're supposed to love each other. You're supposed to support each other. You're supposed to forgive each other no matter what. You're supposed to love each other more than anyone else in the world. And already they're rolling their eyes and saying, whatever, old man. But that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying to Philemon, he believes now. Onesimus believes now. He belongs to Jesus. He's your brother. Not a runaway servant. Not someone who has wronged you. Not the old Onesimus. Here is your new brother. And although Paul, technically, he can whip out his his apostle card, he doesn't. He, He doesn't assert his apostolic authority here. Instead, he reminds Philemon that Jesus has redefined all of our relationships and the way we perceive and evaluate other believers. But Paul doesn't stop there. He gets, he makes this personal. He gets all the way involved. He tells Philemon in verse 17, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. So what's Paul doing here? He's identifying with Onesimus. However way you would treat me, you treat him. Remember last week we we looked at Matthew 25, and Jesus says this to the sheep and the goats, whatever you do for the least of these, my brothers, you do for me. Jesus identifies so closely with his people that whatever happens to them happens to Jesus. Paul is very familiar with this. When Paul first met Jesus, it was on a road to Damascus. Paul was on his way to persecute some more Christians. And Jesus stops him on the road, and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Paul realized on the road to Damascus that by hurting Christians, he was hurting Jesus. So he demonstrates this here. To Philemon, to the rest of the world, Onesimus is useless. He's a nobody. He doesn't matter. 
He's the least of these. But Paul loves this man who did nothing to earn his love. And he tells Philemon to treat Onesimus the way he would treat Paul. And these aren't just words. Paul continues, If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Onesimus' sins are charged to Paul's account. Paul promises to pay Onesimus' debt. This is a story of how one man's useless runaway becomes another man's beloved child. All because the man is willing to pay the redemption price, no matter what that price is. Paul doesn't cap it. He says, I will pay up to $1,000. Anything above that, that's on him. He doesn't do that. He says, I'll pay it. Whatever that price is, I will pay it. So Onesimus has a new identity. How does Paul first introduce Onesimus in this letter? He doesn't say, hey, uh, Philemon, remember your former bondservant, Onesimus? Here's what he says. He says, I appeal to you for my own child, Onesimus. My own child. Paul doesn't tell Philemon the gospel here. He doesn't expound on what Jesus has done. He doesn't say Jesus died on the cross, rose again on the third day. If you believe in him, he doesn't do that. Philemon knows the gospel. Paul doesn't need to tell him, but he needs to show him. And he does that very powerfully here. Paul is acting out the gospel for Philemon. Onesimus is useless to Philemon, but he is incredibly loved by someone else, by Jesus. And although Onesimus has done nothing to please Jesus or earn his love, Jesus identifies with him. And Onesimus' sins are charged to Jesus' account. And Jesus paid for those sins when he died upon the cross. And this is true for all of us when we trust in Jesus for our salvation. You know, Paul could have... um, just written to Philemon and, and waited for a response back and then, and then to let Onesimus know, oh, yeah, you and Philemon are good. Coast is clear. You can go on back now. He doesn't do that. You know what he does? Paul sends Onesimus back with the letter. I can imagine Paul calling Onesimus and, and asking him, hey, can you deliver some mail for me? Take this one to the Colossian church, and, oh, uh, this one's from my buddy Philemon. I think you might know the address. And imagine you are Onesimus, standing at the door to Philemon's house, the house that you did everything you could to escape. Imagine knocking on that door, having no idea what Philemon's response to the letter would be. A fellow bondservant opens the door and recognizes you. He lets you in, and you walk up the familiar path, and before long, you are face-to-face with Philemon. And before he has a chance to speak, your trembling hand thrusts the letter into his, and you stand there with your head bowed, praying that Paul's letter is enough to save you. All you have in this moment is the hope that Paul's intercession would be enough. 
And you know what? We don't know how this story ends. Probably favorably because this letter went public. But like Onesimus, standing before Philemon, all of us will one day stand in judgment before a greater master. And on that day, the only thing we will be able to hope in is our mediator, a far greater mediator than Paul. I want to ask you, have your sins been charged to someone else's account? Has your debt been paid in full? Will God receive you like he would receive his own son? If you believe in Jesus, then the answer is yes. And the more you meditate on this truth and allow it to sink in way deep down deep, the more you will have the attitude of Paul. Paul calls himself a prisoner in this letter. He refuses to act like a big shot apostle, even though he is. Instead, he appeals humbly to a dear friend. Paul saw somebody who nobody else would see, who others would not even notice, who others would call the least, and Paul loved him like his own child. You will no longer evaluate others in terms of how useful they will be to you, but you will find every brother and sister valuable and loved. You know, what's interesting here is that Paul doesn't take a side. He's not team Onesimus or team Philemon. He is concerned with both of them. He doesn't show favoritism. He's just as much concerned with Philemon as he is for Onesimus. The last thing I want to point out is the result of all of this. Paul tells Philemon that the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through him. And in verse 20, he asks Philemon, refresh my heart in Christ. You know, when we forgive, when we love, when we go to the least, what we are doing is we are refreshing their hearts. That word in the Greek for refreshed, it means to cause rest, to soothe, to refresh. This is the effect that we can have on one another. You know, if you look around this room, as you scan the faces of people who are around you, there are those in this room who are enslaved. Enslaved to sin, enslaved to anxiety, depression, bitterness, loneliness, grief. There are those in this room who are running away. There are those in this room who are crippled with fear or regret. Some in this room, in this very room, have been abused, assaulted, abandoned, and profoundly hurt. And many in this room feel as though they don't matter. No one sees me. No one cares. I'm useless. If that is you, then please hear me when I tell you that you are not useless. You are not a useless runaway. You are loved. You are deeply and eternally loved. Your debt has been paid. You are not a slave any longer, but a brother, a son. 
If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Jesus sees. Jesus loves. He offers you his rest, so be refreshed. But I also want to encourage you, if you are feeling like you are the least, entrust yourself to the church, to other believers. Now, as that sounds impossible, Onesimus, he took the step of faith and he entrusted himself to Philemon with absolutely no assurances as to how it was going to end up, how it was going to turn out. He could have been imprisoned, he could have been beaten, he could have been killed as far as he knew. But he entrusted himself to his fellow believers. The worst thing you can do is to further isolate, to further withdraw, to to, to go about it on your own. Entrust yourself to the church. And finally, let us be vigilant for the needs of our brothers and sisters. So many here need rest. And you, you have the power to refresh the hearts of the least. Will you show the church the gospel like Paul did to Philemon? Will you go to the least just as Jesus has come to you? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you have reordered our priorities. You have redefined our relationships. You have redeemed us yourself. And finally, you refresh our hearts. And I pray that that would be the case now. So many here need your rest. And I pray that we would entrust ourselves to you and to your church. We pray this in Jesus.